0: Hey everyone, welcome to the 34th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Craig O'Shaughnessy. Craig is the leading data analyst for the ATB Tour and spent three years as the data analyst for Novak Djokovic. He's also the founder of BraingameTennis.com, a site dedicated to educating players on statistical trends at the pro and amateur levels. On today's episode, we discuss why there's no such thing as an unforced error how to force your opponent into hitting more errors, and how you can win more points on your second serve. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Craig, welcome back to the pod.
1: Jonathan, great to see you.
0: So a lot of the common topics of the players and coaches since we last spoke, they keep talking about consistency, and they're all talking about how matches are won on errors. They're not won from your winners. And so I want to dive in a little bit to start this podcast with what a good air is, what a bad air is, where they come from. And so the first place I want to start is kind of, is there a specific part of the court where you see players making more airs than other parts of the court?
1: Absolutely. You may be familiar with cutting the court up into the four areas of A, B, C, D. So the juice court, you cut in half, the outer half is A, inner half is B. Cut the ad court in half, inner half is C, the outer half is D. So A and D is out wide. A is always the outer half or the outside of the juice court. That is by far the number one place where forehand errors occur. So the forehand roams everywhere. Everywhere is its domain. And and I did a study a couple of years ago in the Australian Open, and it was, I think it was 61% of all forehand winners was struck in the ad court, and, and it was only righty versus righty. So, you know, you look at a court, if you're standing in the middle, don't think of looking to the right to the juice court and say, okay, that's, that's my forehand, the domain of my forehand. You look to the left and say, well, that's the domain of my backhand. It's not. In fact, the left, first and foremost, is the domain of the forehand. So you're going to get winners from A, B, C, and D, and you're going to get errors from A, B, C, and D. But the runaround forehand is by far a, a better choice or, or a better option um, or performs better than the juice court forehand so the runaround forehand has more winners and has less errors if you think of it if you have time to run around you're pretty much in a good position and the three benefits of the runaround forehand are upgrade double and freeze so the upgrade is upgrading from the backhand of the forehand double is i can now attack a and d whereas with the backhand from the middle of the court, it's it's a little more difficult. And then freezes, with, with the run around forehand, you, you don't telegraph where it's going. Naturally, in that open stance, you've got to wait for the ball to come off the court. So while the winners are fairly evenly spread, the errors concentrate dramatically in position A. And so running wide to a forehand produces a lot of errors for a couple of reasons. One is you get players... You know, I did an analysis of Sinner versus Alcaraz at the U.S. Open. Sinner had a match point. Alcaraz wins the match in the tournament. But these guys were just belting each other senseless in A to A, and neither of them wanted to take their foot off the accelerator because they'll get a neutral ball and pulverize it. But then they get a defensive ball, and they want to pulverize that as well. So there was a lot of forehand errors coming out of that location of the court, and it's the same with with everybody. So that kind of gives you an understanding on the forehand side in a rally. You essentially, you know, the two, one pattern, which you you probably heard me talk about is go two balls to the backhand, push the first ball, push the opponent back. Their shot has to come back cross court. If they're hitting a backhand on defense, you step in a step or two, and then you push them wide. And now you've also hit two balls through the ad court and they expect a third and position A is wide open. So, a lot of times the winner in tennis has an assist and the assist is probably more important. Basketball, they record the assist. In tennis, I record the assist a lot of times when I'm doing an analysis of a Masters final or a Grand Slam final because I'm doing a deep dive on a player's forehand or backhand. And so it's not only the winners that they hit, but it's also the errors that that shot causes On the other side of the court. So let's say, for example, Sitsi Pass may have had 10 forehand winners, but his forehand may have extracted 20 errors from the other side of the court. That's a really interesting stat. And then also with Sitsi Pass's 10 winners, it may have been set up with a forehand or a backhand that was that was more important to winning the point. And now if we just flip the conversation over to backhands now. Backhands for righties are going to be hit in position C and position D, and it's almost 80 percent of the errors and the winners are out of D. So ABCD is like the four seasons. That things happen very differently in all of them. You know, if you look at position A, think of there's a pool of blood on the court over there, where the foot. You know, the, the, I talk about the forehand being the sword and the backhand being the shield. What's happening in position A is you're somebody's taking the sword to you in that position, and you're making a lot of errors over there. So it's a it's a, a bucket load of forehand errors. Let's go to the other side of the court now. To position D, there's some assists going on over there, but there's also that's that's where we if, you know if we want to beat the backhand up and and create backhand errors, we're going to have some blood on the court over there as well, but not as much, not as much. Um, The backhand generally produces less errors overall. It's more of of a solid shot. Position C is traffic, just high traffic. Think of, you know, um, a road in Jakarta at 8 a.m. in the morning and everyone's trying to get to work and it's, it's just ball, ball, ball. You know, you want to rally to the backhand, but you don't want to miss. So you don't rally essentially to D, you rally to C. I get it to your backhand. And I don't, I don't get to miss. So, those are three very different areas. And then, position B, there's not a lot of balls go there, but if you hit the ball deep to B, it's a gold mine. It's an absolute gold mine because you're rushing the size of the backswing on the forehand. So, especially in a serve plus one situation where the servers come out of their motion, they're backpedaling, they're, they've got less time. And if you can go deep to B, you now, you now are compromising something. You're compromising their time or compromising their backswing. And you get a lot of errors out of position B if you can get the ball deep in a rally and especially deep in a serve plus one. So if you understand those four different positions and and the different things that happen there, you understand the baseline better. But, you know, the baselines in general, it's nirvana on a practice court. You know, the kids at the back of the court hitting balls, they're getting their rhythm, they're feeling good. The coach is watching this, you know, very few errors, ball after ball after ball. Mom's sitting on the side of the court, sipping her glass of Chianti. She's watching her son, you know, sweating and and having fun. It's like, yeah, here's more dollars for more of this. The coach is like, well, I'm a good coach because the kid's never missing. But the problem is in a match, the the win percentage is low. The average at slams is 47% because you're looking at, Everything on the other side of the court from the baseline perspective of the opponent and the net perspective of the opponent all rolled in. So when they come to the net, that knocks that down. So, you know, Novak at the Australian Open this year roughed everyone up from the back of the court and, and everybody played him wrong. Everybody tried to play him in a baseline rally and essentially coming in, all the players, all of his opponents coming in, they're winning 53, 55% of their baseline points, which is amazing. But they averaged thirty eight percent. Come in the in the match against Novak, they got sorted. So you know, you, you, if you think the baseline is a great place to be statistically, it's a nightmare.
0: So if all if if a majority of errors happen from a,
1: well, majority of forehand errors,
0: ma- ma- majority of forehand errors is that yes. also where the most the most just errors period occur from?
1: Yes, it is because the fore the forehand just has more volume. It has more volume. So yeah, it's a good question. and And I wish I had off the top of my head the, the you know the ratio. In general, tennis is about seventy percent winners off the forehand, thirty percent off the backhand. So you can kind of take that ratio and say, okay, from an error from from a winner and error standpoint, the the you know forcing errors is going to be the same. unforced errors, it's a little bit less off the backhand, even though I hate the unforced error stat, as you know. but yeah, a is a is just blood everywhere, Gory. So,
0: if we know that then, and let's say I'm taking your information, I know that hitting forehands from C is where I can be the most offensive, I can do the most damage, and I find myself in A in a forehand cross court rally, is my best play just going deep to B and trying to center that, you know, center myself after that so I can get out of that position? Or it sounds like maybe there's a lot of errors in that part of the court because it's your offensive shot, but you don't have the disguise. Maybe you're under pressure a little bit. So, what, what's the tactic to remove the errors from a or reduce them?
1: First of all, is the recognition of of the the, the three states that you're in. i mean, offense, neutral, defense, and the, and you know, and you get some players that, such as Novak, such as a Leighton Hewitt, where these and, and Rafa, they're, they're exceptional on defense, exceptional. Um, and you get other players that are not exceptional on defense that that must play cross court. But in general, let's say we're in. You know, we're Novak and we're in a neutral to defensive position. Option one is just let's go A to A. You know, to reduce errors, you stay in the same letter. Balls in A go to A. Balls in B go to B in general. So option one is like I'm going to go A to A and I'm going to use, again, the eight ways to force an error. I'm going to use consistency cross. I'm going to use better direction. Um, even though you're going to a smaller target, but you can use depth, you can use height, you can use spin, you can use power, you can even use core position. There's a lot of ways to still make the opponent uncomfortable a right away. The second one is, yes, going, you can center it a little and, and raise the ball and get it deep to B. And then the opponent's got to make a decision. It's like, okay, do I move back so I can take my normal swing or do I stay and modify my swing so that I can keep contact keep the integrity of contact out in front of my body. And typically players do neither. They combine and say, I'm staying and I'm swinging. You know, I I, I just go back. I did a webinar on it, a free webinar on Alcaraz and and Sinner. And and again, the, the errors just flowed so much out of eight because these guys were just rolling their eyes into their back of their head and unleashing the seven horsemen of the apocalypse, A to A, forehand to forehand, and making a lot and hurting the opponent a lot, but in general making way too many errors. Sinner especially, where he was, he was half-volley, you know, Alcaraz is crushing the ball, cross-court eight away. Um, Sinner's trying to half-volley it and take it down the line. It has no chance of making that shot. Um, no one does, and, and just made too many errors. And in general, even though he got to match point, those A errors, you'll look back, and that, that cost him the match the most. Out of everything, that cost him the most.
0: You mentioned uh, your opinion on what a forced and unforced error is. And if you, if you have videos on the internet, I have seen them all multiple times. I, I, I challenge anyone in the world to, to have watched more Craig O'Shaughnessy information on YouTube or just the web than myself. That's so nice, um, but-
1: Jonathan. It's very nice of you. But but you do an
0: exercise, I've seen it with a group of people, and you'll show a, a point from a match in the U.S. Open, and you'll say, raise, you know, stand up if you think this was unforced right. or or whatever. And basically, the room of coaches or advanced players has no idea if it's forced or unforced because that category is so, so subjective. But if errors are integral to winning a match or reducing errors are integral to winning a match, in your opinion, what type of error is actually unforced?
1: None literally zero. And and I come at that from a couple of different angles. You know, when, if you and I go out onto the court and we start rallying and, you know, my job is to hit a ball that you like. Your job is to hit a ball that I like so we can keep it going. But, you know, I don't move my feet. I, I'm, I'm a little bit off. I hit it off center. I hit it short. You've got to come up and you dump it in the net. I think we've got to understand that errors are normal errors errors happen like I was on court this morning for two hours I was you know out there the first thing we do at a junior we work for the better part of an hour and 15 on on volleys an on approach and volley on, on doubles volleys on singles volleys but we started rallying and we're both hitting the ball well but you know every eight or tenth shot there's an error you know th- there's the other thing is that you know, if he hits it to my backhand, I'm more likely to make an error. If I hit it to his backhand, he's, he's he's more solid. So I prefer to just say, to just make make it simple and go. You either hit a winner or you make an error. And I, I just I don't see the benefit. In fact, I see zero benefits and I see ten problems that emanate out of out of saying the word unforced error because it has this idea that it's associated with it that we shouldn't miss. And then we, we have our juniors that think, that just don't know any better, young kids, 12 years old, 14 years old, that miss and get really upset and cry and go nuts and break rackets and yell at mom and dad and the coach and melt down essentially. And they just got to understand that these errors are normal. These errors are normal. It's normal to make an error. And in fact, as a coach, you know, I, I said it six times this morning, I'm feeding a ball, the player I'm coaching makes an error and I say to them, good error. And they're like, they kind of look at me and it's like, well, "What? what do you mean? I'm like, well, you know, it was, we were doing volleys. Well, you step sideways, which we wanted. You had the right grip, which we wanted. You took zero backswing, which we wanted. You stepped forward to the ball, which we wanted. You caught it out in front, which we wanted, but you caught it on the edge of the racket. And that was the only thing that you did wrong. You did a lot of things right that you can just... Your dial is so close to being perfect and un- unlocking that shot that, that it's good. But he's going to look at it and say, no, I missed. That's an error and that's bad. Players are, generally, I win the point, I'm happy. I lose the point, I'm sad. And that applies to, you know, I hit a winner, I'm happy. I make an error, I'm sad. And it's like, no, your good errors are your essential building blocks to your improvement and to good shots. So errors are not only necessary, they're important and they're critical to the improvement of the player. And once you reach a certain level and you want to up that level by hitting the ball harder or deeper or more spin or more consistent, the initial phase, as you step into that new room of the house that you've never really been in is errors, is errors. Uh, Cause you, you, you can't, you can't master that skill yet. So, You know, I I put such a rainbow and sunshine on the error and say, you know, a lot of times, good error. Let's fix it. Let's modify this. Players will say, well, you know, I'm making all these different errors. This one I made a footwork error. That one I made a swing error. And I'm like, that's amazing. Because now you're understanding all the different things that go into a good shot. And sometimes, you know, if there's six things that we can identify, you may have one, two, three, four, and missing five and six. And the very next shot... You correct it and have five and six, but you're missing one and four. That's tennis. Well, welcome to our sport. So from doing this for 30 years, from looking at forced and unforced, from looking at video, from talking to people, from interviewing the guy that invented the unforced error, I think it's, I think it's um, literally the worst thing in our sport that has a lot of negative connotations that flow from it.
0: So if you can make a good error and like you said, good errors lead to good shots and, and good play. And I don't want to see this in too much of a negative way, but is there such a thing as a bad error? And what, what does a bad error look like?
1: Quite often, a, 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 well, there's, only, there's four errors, you, five errors. There's only five errors you can make. You make an error in the net, you make an error on long, you make an error on left, make an error right. And the ball comes to you and you just miss it altogether. So, you know, for kids that that, that happens. Um, that, that are starting out in the game you know the, the, the worst error is the net error um, but you know there's very few times I'm going to a a player's ever going to hit a ball on the net and I'm going to say good error you know we want to get it out of the net we want to we want the rallying to you know I take a racket and I stand it on the net and I'm like very few balls should go through here that's not your goal and then I turn it up and go in that second racket length above the net I'm like this is where you need to live this is where your ball needs to be flowing back and forth so So I would say a net error in a rally is is a bad error. Going down the line on defense is typically a bad error. I I could probably find a couple of examples like, okay, we can live with that for whatever reason. Maybe if you go back cross-court, the opponent's so strong there. And if you go down the line, the opponent's so weak there and and you're trying to change directions and go down the line. Okay, I understand that. But in general, tennis is a cross-court game. It's easier to hit the ball cross-court. It's easier to hit the ball back in the exact same line that it came to you. So a changing of directions error is not necessarily good. And that error is not necessarily good. And opting for option 17, you know, on a short forehand, when you can go, I can approach to the forehand, I can approach to the back, and I can even approach middle, I can roll it off the court, I can even, you know, or I can, I can, I'm middle of the court, and I can hit a drop shot with the wrong grip. That's generally not a good error either. So yeah, there, there are some, the, the player almost always is going to, is going to grab whatever negativity they can and, and just wash themselves in it and and beat themselves up. And I'm generally immediately finding the good and going, no, you actually did this quite well. And you know, a little bit of a, a correction there you'll be fine. You know, that's kind of how it works.
0: Your coaching and information speaks to me because I'm just like injecting data into my brain and tell me what works and what doesn't and I will do it but we know that all players are not rational emotionless human beings they're super emotional and the funny thing you said about the net you know we have a scoreboard that's about three feet over the net and so we say hey aim aim at the top of that scoreboard and they hate doing it and I said well just so you know you're not good enough to hit it exactly three feet so sometimes you miss two feet lower and it went short but hey at least you didn't make an error like they still have to come up and play right and so I think that's a misconception, is people think you're always just going to hit high, but the other part of it too is if I fed someone a ball, and I said for you know a million dollars you've got to make this forehand, and I feed one a low line drive right in their strike zone, or I feed a, a ball five feet over that that's bouncing high, and I go which feed would you prefer? They all prefer a lower feed.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's perfect. You 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 you've summed it up exactly right. And for tennis players, you know, you've tapped into. The, the the problem that exists for everybody is that we get so wrapped up we put a cocoon around ourselves and we get so wrapped up only in you know me and and looking to the other side of the net we don't put enough emphasis on them we don't look over them and say like, well what do they not want what what shot are they weak at what shot do i see them missing am i right going to my strings between points and writing down those notes so um, i think you know, it's just one of those things from an early age. Um, I, and, I, and I'm pretty sure it was because my strokes weren't great. You know, I was my, you look at me as backhand slice wasn't good. The backhand was terrible. The forehand was okay. Serve was average. Volleys were good. I could run like the wind and I hustled like crazy. But because my strokes weren't that great, I couldn't go backhand to backhand with anyone really as a kid. Couldn't do it. So I had to figure out other ways to beat people but I could beat people better than me by just feeding them a lot of what they didn't want. And then I found out, you know, my crappy backhand slice that falls short a lot is actually a ball that they miss a lot because they have to come forward on a low ball. So I've always looked at tennis and and put the opponent first. And, And I think a lot of players don't do that. So they, they struggle. They struggle with exactly with what you said. They don't see the other side of the court
0: you rattled off the eight ways to make your opponent miss really quickly earlier. And we're talking about height right now, which is one of them. Is one of those methods more
1: effective in forcing an error from your opponent? I The way I frame this is that I call them all precious gems. So I start with, you know, ruby and emerald and topaz and sapphire. But then I said, there's one diamond and that diamond is depth. Getting the ball deep in the court is is everything you know it's just what pros do better in general the ball is going to land within a racket length past the service line on the other side of the court more balls land in that one racket length area than anywhere else on the court generally we hit the ball short Um, when we get tight we hit the ball short pros are better at, at a lot of things a lot of things but they're certainly better at getting the ball deeper into the court and when you get the ball deeper the timing of hitting it as it's rising out of the court is difficult. So out of those eight, I'm always preaching the idea that aim for depth, get the ball deep. And essentially what you're trying to do is, is multiply those together. So if if I'm, you know, illustrating this and I'm standing on a court right now and I'm behind the baseline and I, you know, I just drop a ball and I hit it and and I hit it cross court and I'm like, if that ball has any one of those eight qualities, any it could be a deep ball, it could be a hard ball, it could be I've got good call position, doesn't matter. Generally, when the ball comes back, I'm going to be stepping up to the baseline, I'll be on the baseline, and I'll be leaning on the ball and I'll have time. That's the result of just putting one of those eight in my favor. Now, on the next shot, I combine two of them. Oh, this is a deep ball with power. This is a high ball with spin this has got great direction and i've got great core position as soon as you combine two i now step inside the baseline and i'm re- and i'm really leaning on the ball i've got options i i, I can go cross court and go line do whatever i want in in the next shot i hit i combine three i've got height depth and spin ball doesn't come back it's too overwhelming so what you're trying to do is first and foremost get out of a neutral rally by grabbing any one of those eight. And as a junior, they only recognize, you know, if you ask a junior how your opponent missed their shot, what qualities of your shot will make your opponent miss? Immediately they're going to say power and then then they're going to have to think for a while, then they'll come up with direction. And then they're stuck for about 30 seconds and they don't understand that all of these eight are at their disposal at all times. So once juniors understand exactly, going back to what you said, if you can hit a ball high and get it out of the strike zone where opponents don't like it, that's a big deal. But if that ball's height is high with spin and power, that's a heavy ball, it's not coming back. So what I encourage juniors especially to do is when I'm out on the court with them, even pros, I've been on a lot of times on the court with a pro, they hit a ball, the opponent misses. I walk up to them immediately I was like, why did he miss? And they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure. And I'm like, well, he, remember there are eight ways to make the miss. What was there? Which was it? Which was the most important? Which was, did you layer any of them? And so then they, they have to stop and, t- but, you know, 10 or 20 seconds later, they see it. They understand, okay, yeah, I did hit it deep, but I did use direction and I kept it low. You know, it ended up low for them. So that's a really big, thing for coaches to do is to ask those questions don't tell the player ask the player which layering of the eight ways to force an error did they employ in the last point to make the opponent miss and then then you start to see the opponent you start to respond to the opponent you start to formulate the game plan around the opponent instead of just it's all about you
0: it's so funny because everybody's obsessed with power. Like you said, you ask a junior and you go, how do you make a miss? It's it's speed. And a lot of my kids will say direction so quickly. And out of the eight that you kind of list, those are probably the two riskiest in terms of you making your own error. Like if you hit fast and I'm like, man, if you can make someone miss by hitting high with spin, hitting high and spin also makes you more consistent, which is also one of your things. So it's like you're double dipping. Like I am reducing my errors, but I'm not just, rolling a ball in that's a tough ball for them I think people just they just get obsessed with speed and I kind of understand it because on the driving range I just want to try to hit the ball as far as I can but that's not necessarily like the best way to be efficient on the tennis court
1: yeah and, and you look at the pro game and a pro is exceptional in two areas one is their ability to make the racket head go fast which results in a hard ball I mean I've been on the court standing behind a lot of players, whether it's Novak or Berrettini or whoever, a, a long list of hard hitters. And I watch them hit the ball and I'm like, it, it's almost like magic. I'm like, how do you do that? I'm stunned. It's like, if I tried to do that, I, I just can't, I, I can't reach that speed. And everything comes down to that point of contact. And it's it's the leverage and it's the rotation and it's the upper body against the lower body. But it's that snapping in a contact that they're unbelievably good at that timing to deliver all the energy at the right moment. And the second thing the pro is so good at is um, their movement. You know, they are so quick around the court. They are so good with their little steps to get spacing, right? Way better. You know, a recreational player moves much slower and their spacing is compromised on almost every shot. Whereas a pro they move like the wind and their spacing is almost never compromised. Big difference.
0: So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about serve strategy. Obviously, if you can hold serve relatively consistently, you're going to be in pretty much every set. And I know from your information that, you know, a lot of players hover around 50% win percentage on their second serves. And that's if they're good. Honestly, a lot of the juniors that I chart are well below 50%. Uh, so do you have any keys either tactically or technically to helping yourself win more points on your second serve?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I So after this morning... Um, after we did volleys, we started, it was like, okay, we're going to move into serves. So I do this drill as as a first drill all the time. You always start with second serves. You always warm up and, and, you know, you don't come out and blow your shoulder out by hitting four second serves and then blasting first serves. I went over to the other side of the court and I measured two racket lengths inside the service line. I got the yellow lines. I put them down. And our first drill is, let's hit 10 deep second serves in the juice court. Let's hit 10 deep second serves in the ad court. And they've got to land between the yellow line and the service line. The the player I was working with this morning hit a bunch of good second serves to start with, but none, none of them were deep. None of them were deep. And that just illustrates what he's used to doing, which is kind of rolling it into the middle of the service box, which directly goes right into the strike zone of the returner, and and you're going to be you're going to be on defense a lot. So with juniors especially that I've done this draw with a lot, getting the second serve deep is a really big deal. That helps a lot to stop the opponent stepping in. And if you've got good good shape on that ball, you know you've got topspin on it or you've got slice on it. Um, hitting it deep is not be, is not making it risky. And in, in fact, you know hitting it deep in the service box means to get it back there, you've got to be going after it. And it becomes more of an offensive second serve. The The next part to understand is when you look at the player that has won more second serve points than anyone else, the, the highest percentage, it's, it's Rafael Nadal. And you look at Rafa's second serve, and there's really nothing special about it. You know, if you look at just the serve in isolation, you're like, how in the world can this be, the player that wins the most amount of second serve points. And the, the, the deal is this, is that second serve points won, the second serve, the technique of the second serve is just a, a small part of the story because most second serves come back in play. You could, you could round it out to nine out of 10. Players are, you know, the opponent's not donating very many second serve return errors at all. So, what the second serve points revolve much more around is the the shots that immediately follow it. So, with Rafa, uh, why he's number one in career in, in his career, or you know the history of tennis in second serve points one, is that he's so good with his serve plus one shot. You could almost make an argument. In fact, I'd like to that the serve plus one shot is generally more important than the actual second serve when we look at overall the overall health of second serve points one. So what happens way too much is that we make too many second uh, serve plus one errors after a second serve because we've hit a weaker ball, we've hit a slower ball, we now have a faster return coming back, we have an aggressive returner, and we don't defend well off that ball. One of the best places to hit the return against a second serve is right back down the middle, to position B against a right-handed player, which is middle forehand, to rush the size of that of the backswing and, um, and compromise that. So if the ball does get really easy and you say, okay, I can, I can maybe go for a winner cross-court or I can maybe go for a winner down the line or I could, I could be looking to extract an error there, that's fine too. You, you, are, you are going to attack wider against a second serve than you are against a first serve but there's still nothing wrong with going straight at the player, taking their time away, and and forcing that early error. So I would say for players to improve their second serve win percentage, you will work equally as hard on the second serve as well as the first shot after the second serve in one unit. So you'll hit the second serve. Um as a coach, you let that second serve go by you. you feed a difficult ball, you feed it with top spin, you put it right at them you you try and compromise time for them and and let's see how well they defend because that that falls apart in a hurry at all levels of our of our sport.
0: I know this is a, t- a tough question I'm about to ask because I'm asking you to speak generally, and every player is a little bit different, but We'll make the math simple on this one. Let's say you you win 75% of your first serve points and you win 50% of your second serve points. And so you've got a big point, it's break point. And some coaches say, hey, it's really important you get your first serve in. And so the only way you can make more first serves is to take a little bit of speed off of it. Maybe you add some spin, maybe you add more body. But by doing that, you're probably no longer winning that 75% because the quality of your serve is a little worse. So what is your take on that? Does it make sense to take a little bit of speed and effectiveness off of your first serve to avoid having to hit a second serve? What's the right balance there on a big point?
1: I would say nine times out of 10, the right decision is to make the first serve. Put the first serve in the court. If you have to take 5% off, you know, and I always go back to Andre Agassi here, in the ad court, he had the best top spin first serve out wide probably of all time in fact players should go back and study that I, I should do a blog on that but you know you you want the environment on that big point to be I put a first serve in and I'm hitting a serve plus one forehand my opponent's hitting their weaker return and they're, they're hitting a return plus one backhand going back behind them in saying that Here's, here's the opposite side of that. So when I was um, helped Scott Wittenberg, who was Dustin Brown's coach, with Dustin at Wimbledon against Rafa, let's say it's 30-40 and Dustin's serving. I, I would want him in that situation to hit it and go, I'm going to try and end the point now. Because if Rafa gets that return back and Rafa gets just, if he sinks his teeth into that point, he's probably going to win it because they're going to end up in a baseline to baseline fashion. So I would say to Dustin, let's let's take the battle forward let's take the battle right to the front of the point and sometimes it's like I want you to do a big first serve and I want you to do a big second serve because statistically that's better against somebody that's going to grind you to death in a baseline rally that's the beauty of tennis you know you, you you've got to factor in the opponent you got to factor in the moment you got to factor in how tight am I you got to factor in you know to my last 10 first serves I've only made three or I'm, I'm feeling it I'm 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 backing myself. There's times out there it's like, you know, in a big point, I feel good and I'm coming after you. So I'm going to hit my first serve and if I miss it, I, I still feel good about my second serve because you're making a lot of back-end errors. So I can find that once the rally starts. So it doesn't really matter if I hit a second serve. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving you a definitive answer. I'm giving you a situational answer. But my definitive answer is get the first serve in on a big point for Sure. I, I could sit and watch tennis all day long and find nine, nine out of 10 times that that, that, would, that would trump anything else that's any other situation that, that, that's popped up.
0: We're going to finish with just a few Instagram questions. Uh, this first person wanted to know you, know, you have all this information and data as a coach and you work with pro players and junior players. How do you humanize or simplify that data for players who are more like a field player? Sometimes the numbers overwhelm players. So how do you communicate that information to that type of player?
1: You, you deliver it. It's, the art is delivering it in a simple manner. For example, I was at the Australian Open this year. I had a player come to me wanting information about their game and the opponent. It was second week. It was a, it was a, a, a very recognizable player and a very big match. And I sat down with the team and delivered the information. And at the end of it, the coach said to me, you've delivered this in such a simple manner, way different than I've seen. There's another company out there that is doing a lot of analytical work in tennis, which is fine. Good. We need that. But they are delivering it in such a way that it is so incredibly overwhelming that the coach looks at it, has no idea. There's no recommendation. There's no simplification of it, that it's just vomiting up data. And the coach actually told me is like, I've been turned off analytics in tennis, because I'm presented with so much that I just don't even understand that language to start with. So I've refined the art of delivering it in a digestible manner. That's the key. And then when you're working with, you know, having the ABCD at the back of the court, I can't coach without it. Once the Playo knows that and you, you know position A and D and, and, and uh, you, you know A is where the forehand errors are occurred, D is where we're going to attack the backhand, B is where we can go deep and C is where, where all the traffic is. It, it makes things simple. So it's this simplification which I'm sure as a younger coach I did it wrong. I'm sure I vomited up too much data myself and then over time you just can I say the same message with fewer words or less data and and I, and I got great feedback from that from that at the Aussie Open so I think I'm I'm headed in a good direction with that
0: what is the weirdest data anomaly that you have seen in your time covering tennis
1: the weirdest you know at the slams IBM or Infosys they're the they put their name on it they're, they're like they're the data provider but there's a company under them called SMT that really does all the hard yards. That They're the foot soldiers on the ground doing all the work. And they kind of invented, you know, the guy that runs SMT or started SMT, started the unforced error and all of this, you know, they're counting unforced volley errors. Unforced volley and overhead errors is a category, is a statistic at the Australian Open. Forced errors, and I'm just talking about the tournament totals page, when you, when you wrap up everything and you look at the seven rounds and 127 matches, you, you know, we're, we're not counting forced errors, which is the number one way a point ends in tennis, but we are counting unforced volley errors. So the total is maybe, I don't know, 11 for the tournament. We're counting something that happened 11 times, but we're not counting the number one way a point ended. That That's just absolutely absurd that, that that's even a line item.
0: Love that. And then last one, and I'll remind you what your answer was last year. Uh, it's what is your best advice for the 4-0 player? And I'm pretty sure last time your best advice was make sure you make the first two balls you touch. So so I'm going to make you give your second best piece of advice for the 4-0 player.
1: Is to understand that you will be rewarded more for your ag- aggressive consistency than your defensive consistency. So don't go out there and say, I'm just going to put every ball in the court, and 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 let the opponent, and and you know, the opponent's constantly in neutral or offense. You know, just going out and shoveling the ball back in the court, as an understanding. That's our version of consistency. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Your job is to make the opponent uncomfortable. So yes, I want you to put those first two two balls in, but I want you to look at the eight ways to force an error and understand that your job is to. Keep leaning on the opponent. Keep the opponent uncomfortable. And as we mentioned earlier, you know, it's ringing in my head. Take the net out of play. Just take it out of play. You know, I, I remember watching S, uh, SAP came up with this. It was a tournament, I think, in South America where, for the first time ever, they recorded where all the errors were in a match, were the errors left in the alley or right in the alley or net or long. And it was over – you know, this is a a, a very – two very good players at a WTA event, over 50% of the errors in the match were in the net. You know, it, it's the, the net just, as soon as you get in trouble, it just it, it just opens its arms and says, you know, you're coming to me. So I would say, as you mentioned earlier, get the ball, rally more in that second ra- second racket length above the net, use height to your advantage, Get take the net error away, and at the same time, lean on the opponent. And one of the best ways to do it is against a second serve do not let the opponent just roll a second serve in and let them get away with it you know and if you're taking on risk anywhere on a court up your risk when you're returning second serves to extract errors. so I think I combined three or four into one right there probably cheated on your answer or on your question a little bit but they're all they're all very very valid
0: you did cheat, but honestly, if we were able to reserve you for ten hours, I would have asked you for your top hundred and seventy-five things because <laughs> they're all they're all gold. But th- thank you for your time. It's been it's been a a great hour with you. I've learned again. You just said two things at the end there. I have a lesson in fifteen minutes. I'm going to go use it right now. The way you explained it, I love it. But thanks for your time. We learned a lot about airs and, and hope to have you back on. You know, next year, or similar time. Absolutely. All right. I want to thank Craig for coming on the show again. I know I sound like a huge fanboy, but I love his information and numbers just speak to me big time. So I always love having him on the show. So many great nuggets in this one, where errors are occurring in the court, how to win more second serve points and drills for that. But every episode I've hosted so far, I either hear a new thought or I hear something that's framed or worded in a different way. And today I love the way he framed aggressive consistency versus defensive consistency. Making the first two balls isn't enough if you're just lobbing them back into play, something weak that your opponent can step in and hurt you with. So make sure that you step in, accelerate with height and spin, and pick a target with plenty of margin. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode, and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram, at Stokey Tennis, for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.